In a few moments, we're going to open up Mark's Gospel um, to Mark chapter 7, so I encourage you to open your Bibles, and if you don't have a Bible in your hand, feel free to go and grab one from the table at the back. If you don't own a Bible, please feel free to keep it. It's our gift to you. We're going to open up Mark chapter 7, it's page 1483. This is one of these wonderful passages where Jesus actually, we learn an awful lot from, from moments of conflict in the Gospels from moments of disagreement, from questioning of Jesus and his teaching and his ways. And this is one of those moments that really gets to the heart of what Jesus is all about through a a disagreement with a group that were called the Pharisees and the scribes, who were kind of the religious elite of the day. So let's read the first 23 verses. It says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the, to the tradition of the elders, but eat with, with uh, defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he'd entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, Murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. And all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And one of the questions you have to wrestle with, because it is a prominent theme in the Gospels, is why the the Pharisees and the scribes in particular... Uh, were such a provocation to Jesus, why they ended up in such deep conflict with one another as, as what seemed like opposing groups. And uh, I want to, you know, you should know, by the way, that Jesus, I think he reserves his harshest language for them, which is a surprising thing, isn't it? That here are the men who, 
it seems, most want to please God with their lives. And he has his harshest accusations for them. He calls them, in this passage, hypocrites. He elsewhere calls them children of hell, hell boys. He calls them, um, on one place, he says they're whitewashed tombs, which in, in Jewish in the Jewish context, where a tomb was one of the most defiled places you could go, it's, it's like saying a, whitewashed to- a white toilet, white on the outside, filthy on the inside. It was very, very provocative to these men. And the question you have to wrestle with is why? Because clearly Jesus wants us to understand something of his way as opposed to their way. And the answer is not because they were poles apart in the sense of... Um, of opposites in many ways when you are looking at the pharisees and what they stood for they were very much um it would seem on the surface at least cut from the same cloth as jesus they have a similar regard for the word of god they have a similar desire to know god they have a a similar passion and pursuit of godly living and holiness which cannot be said for everybody who was around jesus and, um, you know, he does encounter people who don't have any desire for those things. I think, for example, at his trial when he meets Pilate or when he meets Herod. These are not godly men. And Jesus actually has very little to say to them because he, they do not have that instinct to pursue God, to pursue righteousness. So these men, in many ways, are not, it would seem, are not the opposite of Christ. They're not poles apart from him. In many ways, their desires align to his. Another thing that you need to be clear about is it's not because... Um, Jesus had come to overturn the keeping of the law. A lot of people set up this contrast. They say, here were all these men who were, who were finickety about the law of God, and Jesus came and just swept the whole thing aside and just preached a life of liberal um, and, uh, and uh, you know, find yourself freedom and uh, whatever kind of lifestyle. And of course, a lot of people recruit Jesus to their modern day causes in the name of doing whatever you feel is right because they say, look, he was against all the people who, who believed in, in, in obedience or believed in God having a particular way that you want to live. And of course, what you discover as you look at the teaching of Jesus and you compare it with the teaching of the Pharisees is they both have a deep moral instinct, a massive concern for the righteousness of God being exhibited in the way that they live. So the question then is, well, what on earth is the difference between Jesus and these men such that he is so, um, so opposed to the way that they're teaching and practicing their faith? Why is there this conflict, this, these, these fireworks, these sparks that arise whenever they're near each other? And I think the answer is that the Pharisees represent the most deceptive kind of counterfeit to true religion. And you think, what, what is it that makes a counterfeit dangerous? The answer is, a counterfeit is, is dangerous because it closely resembles the real thing. You've seen poor counterfeits that, that easily get dismissed, but when you see the, something that is so close to the real thing, that's when you're most likely to be fooled. And it seems to me that when I'm in studying what Jesus has to say to these men, the Pharisees in many ways bore the closest resemblance to the teachings of Jesus, but with with a crucial difference. And I think that this difference, this distinction between them, is unbelievably important for us in our day and age. Because in many ways, as much as it's, you know, we're living in a world which is opposed to the things that we believe and teach, right? And there's a danger in that, but at least you know it's different. So that when you 
are pulled away from Christ, as many of us can experience in temptation, whatever, at least you know that it's opposed to the way of Christ. But the most dangerous things for a Christian are not the things which are so evidently and obviously opposed to him. The most dangerous things are the things that look like the way of Jesus, but are not his way. And I think that to grasp what this is about, you have to understand that what we're talking about is two different origins or powers or kinds of religion here. One you can call the way of man, and the other is the way of God. One is the way of man, and the other is the way of God. So alike on the surface, but so utterly different in the foundations and the power and the driver of what makes it true religion distinct from what the Pharisees were doing. Now, in order to uncover this, I want to begin, first of all, with thinking with you about the dangers of the way of man. Because I think we need to start first by looking at some of the fruits of this. Because in looking at the fruits, you can begin to see how some of this can be evident even in your own spiritual life. Or how, if you are not a Christian, you have seen these kinds of things evident in Christians, and it's put you off Christianity. The dangers of the way of man. Let me show you a few things. Here's the first. This way is dangerous because it is miserable. I think the first thing that you would have noticed and do notice in the encounters with the Pharisees and the scribes in the Gospels is that they exhibit joyless faith, a joyless way of wanting to relate to God. And this is no surprise, to be honest, because if you think, what is the big difference between the things that God makes and the things that man makes in terms of just physical artifacts and the kind of uh, things that you can compare? You compare, for example, um, a bird with a drone. Or compare um, a tree full of life and energy and capturing um, energy from the sun with a, with a pylon that we put in the countryside, also a source of energy and power. Or compare, um, let's put it this way, think about your smartphone, something which man compare, it creates. And what should we compare that with? Maybe a friend, right? So you think about the things which... The the things which God makes and the things which man makes, the things which God makes are full of life and joy and inherent power and energy. The things which man makes are basically lifeless objects that often sap and destroy and, and sap our joy. No one wants a garden full of drones, do they? So this is the first thing you notice about these men. They were miserable. The Pharisees were not fun. And we always encounter them frowning and questioning and probing and accusing. To, they were, they were, you can think of it like this. They were known almost exclusively for the things that they were against rather than things that they were for. Now, of course, all of us are against stuff. You can't be a Christian and not be against things. But they were known only for the things that they were against. And so what you're, you're seeing in these men is a joyless religion. And I want to... listen. We need to ask this question of ourselves. Is your faith characterized by joylessness? Because if it is, then it's very possible that what you are living out is the counterfeit version of Christianity and not the real thing. And I tell you why that's such a danger. Because ultimately, we all want happiness, don't we? And it'll put you off. It'll put others off. It is the most unappealing way of experiencing and practicing faith. It's miserable. That was one danger. Here's another danger of the way of man. It's totally exhausting. 
partly because of what I've been talking about, this powerlessness at the heart of it, but it is exhausting. Why would that be the case? Because I think the focus of man's way of doing religion is entirely on what you must do. That's where the waiting is, and that's what these Pharisees were utterly consumed with in their waking hours, was jumping through the right hoops and knowing exactly what they must do on a moment-by-moment basis. They were burdened with this to an unbelievable degree. The, the Pharisees, and I've, I'm going to give you a few examples today of the kind of things which they, they uh, commanded, but they, they not only had the law of God, but they layered it up with all kinds of other rules to make sure that you, you kept to it. And just to give you a couple of examples, for example, they were pretty fastidious about keeping the Sabbath, making sure you do not work on the Sabbath day. And they were very prescriptive about it. For example, one commentator gives an example of how if you had a wooden leg, um, don't know if any of you have one of those, but if you had a wooden leg and your home caught on fire, you, your wooden leg, the question was, could you carry the wooden leg out with you on the Sabbath day? Now, you can imagine what kind of mentality is it that asks that kind of question to begin with? Or here's another one. I love this example. They said if you spat on the Sabbath um, into the ground, into the dirt, they said you better be careful not to touch it with your foot because in doing so, you are cultivating the soil. And so you're engaging with work on a Sabbath day. Now imagine how utterly draining and exhausting and life-sapping it is to be burdened and saddled with all these kinds of weird rules and regulations. And they're just two tiny examples from one little um, aspect of what it means to be righteous. And these things rolled out into every part of life. It was like, you know, it's like you can think of it as, have you ever been in a swimming pool with all your clothes on? I had to do this. I used to be a a pool lifeguard once upon a time. You can imagine me, right? I was a pretty useless lifeguard. I spent most of my time reading on the side of the pool. (laughs) Everyone was drowning around me. Um, But yeah, so part of your training, you have to jump into the water fully clothed. You have to experience that. And, um, you know, everyone knows that the only way to swim is in a pair of Speedos, isn't it? So imagine, this is what it was like, practicing religion, burdened and saddled by all these man-made rules and regulations. It was like swimming fully clothed. They were miserable. It was totally exhausting. And again, you need to ask yourself, is your experience of faith exhausting? In that it is draining and not life-giving. And that you constantly feel the strain and the stress of what you're trying to attain rather than the joy of living out what God has given to you. Again, this is dangerous stuff because nobody is drawn to an exhausting, stress-giving example of, of faith in God, are they? And you'll be put off eventually. Miserable, exhausting. And here's another thing I'll add about one of the dangers. It's totally self-deluding also. You're not even aware why things aren't working, or that they're not working. When you're in this kind of a system, as I, th- I suspect some of you are, you may not even be conscious of the fact that you're living in the way of man rather than the way of God. Now, why would that be the case? And I think the answer is because the way of man has an intrinsic reward system. It offers you rewards that give you the delusion that you're making progress whether it's the affirmation of others or recognition from the community or just a self-assessment of your progress in this thing. And 
Of course, all of it's empty because these are empty realities and empty rewards, but we believe in them. You know, one of the things you'll learn as a parent is that you can use empty rewards to motivate your children. So we have little star charts in our fridge, and we tell them if you can do this, 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 and this in any given day, you'll get a shiny golden star. And of course, those stars have no value whatsoever, but they don't know that. Wonderfully motivating to children, but utterly useless in the real world. And it has an intrinsic motivating power, but they're actually living inside a delusion. Don't tell them. And, um, or, or, for example, you ever get, get caught up in one of those, um, those games on your, on your smartphone that offer you rewards as you progress through levels. Now, what value do those rewards have? None whatsoever. And yet they are powerful and addictive, aren't they? Unless you think this is just, you're just talking about all the stupid people. Some, we're, in a sense, we're all caught up, caught up in these in these systems of intrinsic reward. In many ways, the world in which we live, the city in which we live, is an exhibit of the very thing I'm talking about. The rewards of success and promotion, all actually that may have very little to do with your general well-being and flourishing in life, but that we chase after them because we're in a system that we're caught in, we think we're pursuing something worthwhile. And this is how the way of man works. Paul talks about this in his own life before he became a Christian in uh, the beginning of, of the book of Galatians. He talks about, um, let me just see if I can find it here. Galatians 1, he says that I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. He says within that system, I was a success and I was far ahead of other people, which is, explains why he was so deluded by the system. He was winning. But, of course, the whole system was bankrupt to begin with. And this is how the counterfeit version of faith works. You don't even know your spiritual poverty because you think you're winning. But at the heart of it, there's a hollowness or a bankruptcy that the life in you is not really life. This is why what we're talking about is so, so urgent and so powerfully dangerous for people to get caught up into. The way of man is dangerous. Now, I want us to think now about the characteristics. We need to describe exactly what we're talking about here and and look at the passage and understand what it was that characterized the way of man as opposed to the way of God. And I'm going to show you four things. The first is this. The way of man is marked by prideful judgment of others rather than humility in oneself. Prideful judgment rather than humility in oneself. We have to pause and consider if that is our own heart or mentality. The whole scenario arose over their prideful judgment of Jesus and his Pharisees, uh, sorry, his disciples, that when they went to eat, they were not washing their hands. But as they questioned them, you can hear in the question the judgment because their wording is like this. Why do your disciples not walk according to the, to the tradition of the elders but eat with defiled hands? They don't say dirty hands. They don't say just unwashed hands. They say defiled hands, which is a heavy, pregnant word, a word that carried with it the full weight of the Old Testament law and what it meant to be ceremonially defiled in the eyes of God. They were saying, your men, your disciples are defiled, and we are therefore looking down upon them for their failure to do what we all do 
which is to wash in the correct way before dinner. Now, we know, looking from the outside in, this was a non-issue. But it was a massive issue to them, because what we're talking about here was a tribal marker. The frightening thing is, by the way, that everyone establishes these markers, these tribal markers, these boundaries to how you can distinguish who's in and who's out. That very often have very little to do with true godliness, ways of speaking, ways of acting, ways of behaving, that really represent the accumulation of man's way, the way of man and not true righteousness. Ask yourself the question, why, why at the heart of the way of man is pride always such a prevalent issue? And why might it be the thing which characterizes your own walk with God? Why is it such a key diagnostic? And I think the answer is this. That the way of man is always achievable, but the way of God is impossible. The way of man, because it's built by us, any way of practicing faith that is constructed by humans is by definition an achievable walkable pathway to righteousness or to God. What the Bible shows us is that you do not, that that God's way is impossible because it is supernatural. It's not something you can simply choose to do. It's not something you can simply summon from yourself the power to walk in. When we build a system that's achievable, Our winning in that system, of course, then creates the pride in us that causes us to judge others. Whereas to be in God's way is to understand how utterly impossible his way is, which humbles us to the ground and saps all judgment. Because how can you judge others when you know yourself that you are not able to walk in this way except by the power of God? It's characterized by pride and not humility. Here's another thing you can say about it. The way of man is characterized by man-made rules instead of a passion to submit to and please God with your whole life. Now, this is how the conflict arose that day, of course. What they, were, what they were putting before Jesus was actually a man-made rule. There is a law in the Old Testament about washing, but it only applied to priests. And this had been built up into becoming something which everybody had to do multiple times a day. And this is why Mark offers us this little side explanation here when he says there are many other traditions that they observe. He's saying this isn't the law of God. This is man-made rules, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And he just explains. He's trying to say, look, there was all all this baggage that came with being a Jew at the time because of what the elders told you you had to do. Again, just coming back to some examples in, in uh, Kent Hughes' commentary. He said, for example, that it was forbidden to look in the mirror on the Sabbath day just in case you saw a gray hair and were tempted to pluck it out. Or you couldn't carry a handkerchief on a, sun, on a Saturday, but you, you could wear it because they said... It meant if you were upstairs and wanted to take the handkerchief downstairs, you'd have to tie it around your neck, walk downstairs and untie it. Then you could blow your nose downstairs. 
You think how utterly confusing it was to be bound up in the way man constructs and establishes rules around religion, ostensibly to make it more powerful, but actually to make it weaker and more man-centered. And you ask yourself the question, you know, this is why Jesus is so powerfully accusatory to them in the way he speaks when he, he recruits this prophecy from the book of Isaiah. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Jesus hated lip service, I think, above all. He hated fake religion. And this, this, was, this was lip service because it put man's traditions over and as of more importance than the word of God. Why is there an instinct in us to do this? And I think the answer is that rules are actually more simple than relationships. It's more easy, isn't it, to be told, this is the path and this is the steps that you take to get to where you need to go, rather than the complexity of being told, no, the calling of the Christian is to know God. Of course, he has a certain way that you want to, he wants you to live. Of course, imitation of God will mean transformation of your life. But the focus is not on the steps. The focus is on the person. But the steps are easy, aren't they, to master. You think about the popularity of life hacks these days. It's basically offering you a bunch of shortcuts to where you want to get and reducing the complexity of life. But life is complex. And knowing God has complicated dimensions to it because God is a person and not some kind of machine. It's seductive to us to follow rules to get what we want, but basically it's selfish, isn't it? Because it's not about God, it's about you. You think about how there are men in our day and age who offer their services and offer in teaching other men how to seduce women. And I think that what the Pharisees were offering was something very similar. It's a rule-based approach to this relationship. You'll get what you need or what you want at the end if you just follow these three steps or these thousands of steps in their case. Whereas, of course, as in love, so in knowing God, as in romantic love, so in being a believer, the destination is a relationship with the living God. Just as you can't be given three steps to seducing someone into a genuinely loving relationship, so also you can't be given these steps into knowing God. Knowing God is something else altogether. I think this is why Paul picks up on this, again, in another letter, when he talks about his past life as a Pharisee. In the book of Philippians, after describing his old life in Judaism, and how, again, how he was so exceptional in that life, because he was winning in that system, what he now talks about, in contrast, he says, indeed, I count everything as loss. I, I scrap that whole system, he says, in preference for this, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The opposite of man-made rules that make all religions Achievable but also miserable is the knowledge of God as a friend. The knowledge of Jesus. It prioritizes man-made rules over passion to submit to and please God. Here's a third thing. 
The way of man is marked by hypocrisy and not authenticity. In other words, there's going to be a disconnect between the outer person, the way you conduct your life, and the reality of your heart, the condition of your heart when you follow the way of man. And Jesus uses another example here when he exposes this in them, when he talks about this example of gifts that should be given to your parents. He says the command is clear. It's one of the Ten Commands, honor your father and mother. And of course, one thing as Westerners we don't understand, but which is very patently obvious in the East, and certainly I've learned this marrying into a Chinese family, is that part of honoring your parents is, of course, financial honor. Um, My father-in-law likes to tell my wife that she's his pension plan. So (laughs) I only discovered this after marriage. But um, of course, honor your father and mother is the principle of what godliness looks like. But these guys had a workaround. They could simply label their possessions with a sticker that said Corban, which means offered to God. It didn't mean they had to actually bring it to temple and give it to God. They just labeled it that way. It was a way of classifying their assets, just like people pop their assets into tax havens. And it protected them, shielded them from any obligation to their parents. In other words, they looked godly on the outside. They had the appearance of godliness because all the stuff they owned was offered to God. Of course, God had told them what to do with their stuff. Their hearts were rotten even as their appearance looked godly. Why does Jesus call this hypocrisy? Many of you will know that the word hypocrite comes from a Greek word, which was the name they gave to play actors in the theaters. Because an actor in the Greek theater wore a mask when he played a role. And many people in churches have an inauthentic relationship with God because they are only wearing a mask. They have the appearance of godliness, but not the relationship with God. It's not authentic. It has no integrity is another way of putting it. Integrity means oneness. It means that what's true of you on the outside is also true of you on the inside. Cut you anywhere and we discover the same thing about you. Whereas, of course, what the Pharisees were advocating and the way of man is a lifestyle that looks godly, but at the core, there's a rottenness. Which brings me to the last thing about this, the characteristic of the way of man. It focuses on external obedience rather than internal godliness, which is an extension of what I've just been saying, but we need to dig into this a bit deeper. Why would it focus on external obedience, not internal godliness? I think there are two reasons. One is that you can control your behavior, but you cannot control your heart. I can change the way I act. I cannot change the motivations of my heart. And also because man-made religion is mainly concerned with appearances. It has a concern for horizontal approval from other people. Whereas the way of God is concerned with reality. With how God assesses you. With the relationship that God has with you. Jesus stresses this theme very powerfully in this later teaching he gives here. When he says to his disciples, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. 
Because he says, look, whatever you eat, and he was overturning the food laws here, which were only given as a teaching aid to understand how defilement, the principle of defilement works. He's saying it was just given an example. But of course, understand that the stuff you eat doesn't make you impure. He says, what makes you impure, he says, is what arises out of the heart. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? But he says, for from, it's from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. The bottom line is that the way of man cannot help you. It can't change you. And a lot of people are laboring inside a system that they think is true Christianity, but is not true Christianity because it is actually a man-made construction. The real thing is something entirely different. I want to ask finally then, well, what is the solution that Christ offers? It's not enough, is it, merely to expose the sickness and the disease, but without offering you hope and understanding. What is it that makes Christianity different from the way the Pharisees were living? Just rule out a couple of things. It's not the jettisoning of rules or of laws in preference for a kind of do-whatever-you-want lifestyle. It's how often, as I said at the beginning, that's how people set these things in opposition. It's very clear, even just from the part we just read, Jesus is passionately concerned with godliness. And nor is it about him offering you just an alternate set of rules. He's saying, the Pharisees' rules were no good, but let me offer you some different ones. These ones will will serve you better. It's not that either. What is it that Jesus wants? And I think... The distinction can be understood like this. The difference between the fake thing and the real thing is that the fake thing is about repairing and the real thing is about rebuilding. Repairing means making gradual improvements to an existing structure. So you buy a home and discover that it's got rot in the walls or the roof leaks or... Uh, just smiling, David's just bought a home exactly like this, haven't you, mate? He's working hard on it. But, but repairing is basically you take what's there and then you, you improve it. Or you can think of genetics. How we, All the time our, our understanding of genetics is, improve, is, is increasing to the extent that we can improve life. You can make a bacteria that creates human insulin, which benefits us. It's an extraordinary thing. But, but that's basically repairing or, or, or just working with the materials you have. The gospel that Jesus preached and which the New Testament is all about is not about repairing what exists in your life and just gradually improving it on a road of improvement towards heaven. The gospel is about total demolishment and reconstruction and rebuilding from the ground up. Using again the example of genetics and of life. Only God can create life from nothing. And that is what he does when God comes into your life. That's what he's doing in you if you are a believer. The fundamental difference is that this is supernatural. 
The way of man is all about you, about the degree of effort and strain that you put in to win in that system. The way of God is about his action in and upon your life. That is what grace means. Grace means fundamentally, God did it. I did not. It means that God gifted to me this life and this transforming power. He's at work in me. I did not do this. There's so many parts of the New Testament that talk about this. Jesus says in John 3.3, he says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He's saying, it's not enough that you merely tack on my teaching onto your life as though that's going to help you in the end. He says, rather, you need to be demolished and reconstructed. You need to die so that you can rise again. You need to be born again. And years later, when Peter's writing to some of the churches, he opens his letter in this way. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let me read you another um, verse in 2 Corinthians that describes this action of God upon you rather than your action in believing. Paul puts it like this. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You can begin to understand, by the way, why so many people in the church, and indeed so many churches, can look like there's life there on the outside, but there's no real life. They're not, there's not the new creation life that we're talking about here because this is the work of God. And thinking about you as an individual, it's possible for somebody to labor under the delusion that they know God even for years and perhaps even unto death without ever having experienced this transforming work of God that works from the inside out rather than from the outside in. You know when you're a believer because you know you become a new creation. You know that it's God working upon you much more than it's you attaining or achieving anything. How would you know that that's true of your life? And I think it goes, it's really down to what Jesus says at the end of of that passage where he says it's all about the state of the heart. That's where we see this transformation take place. It's not primarily at the level of behavior. Yes, that will change. But it's at the state of your heart, what you desire. There's a verse in Romans 6, a couple of verses in Romans 6 that put it like this. Paul says, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. The thing is, it didn't matter how hard the Pharisees worked. They were still slaves of sin. It didn't matter how perfect their behavior was and how many times they washed their hands. They were still slaves of sin because out of the heart, defilement arose. All the evil desires, which maybe never found action in real life, but which lurked deep in their spirit. 
The opposite, of course, is true of you when you know God's power in your life. He begins to regenerate and transform you from the inside out. He gives you a new heart. A new heart is characterized by new desires. And the desires that he gives you are desires to live his way for his glory. It's not that you don't often experience conflicting desires with those. Temptations to sin. But there is a deeper, greater, more potent, gravitational pull towards the way of God. Which ultimately wins out in progressive transformation of your life from one degree of glory to another, the Bible says. Do you have that power at work in you? If you know that you do, and many of you know God in exactly this way, the right response is just gratitude and exuberant praise, isn't it? I want to lift off of you the heaviness that maybe you've been laboring under and bring you back to this understanding. Trust in the Lord to bring about the change in your life. But if you're not a Christian or you thought you were a Christian, friend, I want to I encourage you to call out to God, God, I need to be born again. I need your resurrecting power in my life. One of the things you'll experience in life is the inability to change yourself. And the frustration, like banging your head against a brick wall about the fact that your heart is a stubbornly wicked thing. And the only solution for that is this resurrecting power of God in your life. His Holy Spirit coming and bringing transformation. Amen.